Welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. Today, I have Alyssa Tyler on here with me, and I'm really excited. I actually just, I just recently found you. Like we just, yes, we <laughs> just connected, just barely, yeah, <laughs> through just a new certification program that I'm doing. And I was so, you're the funny thing, Alyssa, is your section of gut health. We haven't even started that. But you come in with these little tidbits and I'm just like, everyone stop talking. <laughs> like, let her keep going. Like, this is what we need. And so, well, I always get so excited when you come in because you're very clear and and contextual in your statements. And I just really, pre- it's very obvious that you um, take the individual into account that you're experienced with this and that you have a passion for it. And I love people who are passionate about what they do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited for all of the listeners to meet you today. I just want to strongly encourage everybody to follow her as well on, on Instagram and just, man, you are a wealth of of knowledge. And I'm just going to turn the time over to you to just kind of introduce yourself and tell us how you got into gut health. Cause you're a dietitian. Is that, is that correct? I am. Yeah, I am a dietitian. Um, long story, you know, when we, when we think about becoming a dietitian, we feel like we're going to be well-equipped to deal with every single type of client, And unfortunately it's not the case. And I think every coach can agree with that. Like we have to keep learning. We have to keep investing in our education. So I did not get into functional nutrition right away. So my background is very, very clinical. When I first graduated, well, let's back, let's, let's rewind a little bit. I was a Spanish major in my undergrad. So, (laughs) so completely different path of what I wanted to do. That was my minor. My minor was Spanish. That is so funny. Okay. Yeah. So I planned on teaching, which as you know, I I love Mm -hmm. teaching, teaching, educating people, mentoring coaches. Like that's what I love to do. So the background of education is still there, but I rarely use my Spanish. I mean, I live in Florida now, so I I get it a Mm -hmm. little bit, but definitely not conversational. So I went back to school. I got my master's in nutrition. And then my first immediate job out of school was working for the Cleveland Clinic. And I was working in clinical outpatient therapy. I was dealing with, honestly, you didn't even know who was going to come through your door. I had people that did not speak English and required a translator because Cleveland Clinic is very prestigious. We would get people from all over the world that would come to see us. I worked with transplants. I worked in bariatric surgery, which I loved. I would have done that full-time had I had the opportunity. And a lot of diabetes, a lot of just very basic nutrition stuff. And then, you know, what I realized was I just wasn't getting to help people how I wanted to. Functional medicine was just being born. I felt a lot of limitations working in just general nutrition therapy where I couldn't help them to my max ability. I knew there were deeper rooted things that we just weren't taught in our didactic. So 
that's what led me to do an additional certification. So I did a two-year certification through Nutrition Dynamic. Um, It allowed me to grow from a functional medicine space. And now the type of clients that I attract are ones with more intense issues that have the gut, gut issues, have hormonal imbalances, have hypothyroidism or autoimmune Hashimoto's, you know, anything along that type of very extreme conditions where they just have not had a lot of relief from traditional medicine. And, you know, what got me into that space was just my own experience working with traditional medicine in my own journey, because I've had gut issues since I was little. I was born with a lot of GI issues. I had a colonoscopy, you know, nothing was found. It was diagnosed as IBS, which I think a lot of your listeners and even clients that you probably come in contact with are diagnosed with because nothing else is wrong. And if nothing else is wrong, you're getting stamped as IBS. So I kind of got into this niche because I love it. And I can relate to those clients that are coming to me. I love that. I Do you feel like when they just don't know what's going on, they just quickly say, oh, IBS, because they feel like it kind of is this all-encompassing, vague enough? Yes. Yeah. You either have IBS-C or IBS-D. It's either constipation or it's diarrhea. And it is a legitimate diagnosis. You know, I can't, I can't deny that it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. But it really doesn't answer the questions that the client is looking for. You know, what do I what do I do next? How do I how do I treat this now that I know that I have it? And that's my job to dive in deeper and figure out what is actually driving this IBS diagnosis. Um, and it's extremely frustrating for a client. It's it's nice when you finally get a diagnosis, but it's it's very it's very sad when you don't know how to mm-hmm. fix it. That's true. Did you feel like you finally started getting um, the relief that you had been, you know, dealing with since the time you were younger when you started doing the nutrition dynamic and then started applying a lot of the things you learned there? Um, Not so much. Honestly, I had a wonderful, wonderful experience with a functional medicine doctor. And that's, that's what kind of drove me to do the functional medicine route. So she actually listened to me. She dove in deep to my symptoms. She spent like an hour and a half, two hours in my session, which is unheard of. You know, you go to the doctor, you better have everything ready to present to them because you're only going to be seen for like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes. (laughs) I don't even know if they're going to look at you during that session because most of the time they're just typing with like their backs (laughs) to you, like typing on a computer. kind of true. (laughs) It's horrible. Um, And not all doctors are like that, but it was a wonderful functional medicine doctor that took, took my symptoms into account and ran through my entire childhood and stress and different traumas and um, you know, everything because so much can impact the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just food intolerances. It's not just pathogens. It's different things that could be part of your lifestyle that is impacting you so much. So it was really neat to see that connection between so many different parts of the body and so many different parts of my life. I love that. I think one thing that really sparked my interest in GI when it was actually a question that you got um, somebody in the group asked, they said, do you, and I, and so I kind of want to throw this out there for you to answer again. They said, which one do you 
do you guys tend to want to solve first, hormone or GI? And I guess we always hear so much about if you feel like crap, things aren't working really well, it's hormones, hormones, hormones. If you can't lose weight, uh, hormones have been downregulated. And so I just kind of want to open that up to you. Talk to us about that, about the connections between the two and why maybe you work on one side of the equation versus the other first. Sure. Yeah. Hormones are, hormones are unfortunately very quick to blame for a lot of our problems. It's not to say that hormonal imbalances don't exist, but it's trying to understand what came first. And so in my experience working with clients, tackling the gut first and foremost makes a huge difference. There are so many pieces that good gut health has to be in order. So by improving the gut we can often influence positively the hormones, whether or not we realize it. Mm. Um, So I can walk through the different pieces of the hormones and why they get affected if you want to chat and dive deep into all those things. But a big part of this has to do with our absorption of nutrients and minerals that, that occur in the gut. And if someone has reduced digestive capacity, meaning that they cannot absorb their nutrients because they're not digesting food well and they're not shuttling those nutrients to where they need to, that's going to trickle down to a lot of different things. Even when we think about, let's say, for example, vitamin D deficiency, which you know is super, super common. I think every single set of labs I see from a client is vitamin D deficient. It's just, it's not, it's not something that surprises us when we see it. And we have to remember vitamin D is more so a hormone as opposed to a vitamin. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So if someone has fat malabsorption issues, let's say, for example, their gallbladder is not functioning well, that could be why that person is having vitamin D deficiency. And what we most often prescribe is, all right, clients, you need to take a ton of vitamin D And that's not actually fixing the root cause of the problem. The problem is you're throwing all this vitamin D at them and they can't actually absorb it. So fixing the gallbladder is the main thing. And vitamin D plays a huge role in things like testosterone production. We also have to remember that fat malabsorption could greatly affect our cholesterol and cholesterol is the precursor to DHEA, which is the precursor to testosterone and estrogen and progesterone. So if we are not able to produce a sufficient amount of cholesterol because fat malabsorption is so high, that's going to impact our sex hormones. When we think about thyroid function, so our thyroid does amazing things for our metabolism when it's happening the way that it should. When we think about the role of the thyroid in the body, we have to make sure, which a lot of people don't test, we have to make sure that free T3 is in good production. Free T3 is what regulates our metabolism. It regulates our temperature. It really serves the purpose of what the thyroid should be doing. And free T3 conversion, not all of it, but some of it occurs in the gut. The liver is the other place. 
So if our gut is imbalanced, if we have a lot of bacterial overgrowth, it's going to be really hard for T4 to create T3, active thyroid hormone. Not to mention that conversion of T4 in active thyroid hormone into T3 active thyroid requires zinc and selenium. So again, if we are not able to digest and absorb those nutrients, we're going to be deficient in those things and not able to produce enough T3. So we've got thyroid, we've got testosterone and estrogen and progesterone. Now we need to talk about estrogen because that's Mm -hmm. huge. There's a huge link between estrogen and the gut. It's actually known as the estrobilome. It's like a fancy term for the estrogen microbiome because there's so much of an influence between gut health and estrogen. And a common thing that I see with individuals who are estrogen dominant is they have chronic constipation. Have you seen that in your clients by chance? Mm -hmm. I was just barely reading about that because um, we're seeing that a lot with perimenopause, postmenopause, estrogen dominance, and women's constipation, not going to the bathroom enough. That was actually something I wanted to, I was excited to address with you in our course. So I'm glad you're bringing this up early. Yeah. So estrogen, it is metabolized or broken down in the liver. So the liver is a huge part of gut health too, and hormone balance. And then what normally should happen with estrogen is after it gets metabolized in the liver, it combines with bile. So estrogen is is fat-loving. So bile carries this fat-loving toxin to the gut. And when there are high concentrations of what's called beta-glucuronidase in the gut, which we do not want in high concentrations. This will prevent a sufficient amount of estrogen actually getting detoxed from the body. So we wanna make sure that we can excrete estrogen because if beta-glucuronidase is high, what this enzyme does is it will take that estrogen and recirculate it back Mm -hmm. into the system. So a lot of times when we do stool testing with individuals, we can see a link between high estrogen and the fact that this client has high beta-glucuronidase levels on their GI map. It'll tell us that liver detoxification is something that we need to focus on, that this person is at risk for estrogen dominance because those detox pathways are not functioning the way that they should. One thing that I see a lot in fitness, um, TikTok and Instagram and all, you know, the highly reliable places (laughs) where where we all get our information, um, is that liver detoxification isn't needed, that the liver is supposed to detoxify itself and it does its job. And so we don't need to worry about any of that. And I've been one of those in the past who have said that as well. So what are, do you think about that now? Obviously you brought it up so you know, you feel like, no, that's something we do need to worry about. And then also, um, how does somebody know they need liver detoxification and what's a good method? Sure. So to answer your first question, yes, the liver is our detoxification organ. However, 
the liver gets very, very easily burdened. It will do the job that it needs to do, but it really depends on how much toxin exposure we are having. And I don't think a lot of people understand how much exposure we get on a consistent basis. It could be coming from the air that we breathe and unknowingly have no idea. It could be from the products that we're using. You know, if we're using perfume every day that has fragrance in it, it can get into our blood barrier very quickly. Our makeup, our skincare, our shampoo, like everything. And we can start to panic when we think about all of these things that we need to replace. And the purpose is not to scare you, but it's to make you aware that chemicals come in a lot of different forms. And it's important to slowly start to make those changes. What's also important to remember is a lot of us just don't eat a good, well-rounded diet. And in order for phase one and phase two detoxification to occur smoothly, it requires certain cofactors. It requires certain antioxidants like zinc and selenium, and it requires certain vitamins at those stages. So if someone's diet is not good or someone's gut health is not absorbing those nutrients, liver detoxification is going to suffer. Um, I have never seen a client that did not require some sorts of liver detoxification support. It's often the first thing that I work on with clients and it helps immensely. And so when we're thinking about needing liver detoxification. One big sign that I like to ask individuals is whether or not they're waking up in the middle of the night. Are you waking between the hours of one and three in the morning? Because that is when our liver is most active. So if you find yourself rolling over in the middle of the night and it's like three o'clock on the dot, that's a sign that you need liver detoxification support. You might feel super tired and sluggish. You might have brain fog. You might bruise easily. You might notice that you have a lot of gut issues. Um, Maybe you have skin reactions because you have a lot of inflammation in your system. So again, I have not met any clients that does not require detoxification support. It's necessary. One question with that, because that is one that I get a lot. A, a lot of clients are frustrated because they're they're waking up. It well, when they come to me, they're waking up in the middle of the night, and they are just. And it's not just like a normal, like little wake up and roll back. To, it's like every night wake up wide awake, and they lay there almost frustrated. Right? Sometimes. I've been able to solve that with just an introduction of um, maybe some fruit before bed, maybe some... Sure. Could be a blood sugar issue. Yeah. Should they try that first and then do detox or should they just dive right into detox? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on what the other symptoms are that they're experiencing. So... I noticed that people that have sluggish pathways, it's normally associated with some detox or some constipation. So if you notice constipation is there, focus on that. That's going to help. Get them hydrating because liver requires hydration. You have to sweat. You have to pee. You have to poop. That's how you get toxins out. 
So if someone is not active, they're not moving, get them walking, get them exercising. If someone is not hydrating well, get them drinking a sufficient amount of water. If someone is not sweating, get them sweating, sit in a sauna, try all those things first. And then you can dive into more extreme methods because it's not like you have to do a crazy detoxification protocol. It's not like you have to buy $200 worth of supplements and dive into that. But if you can go through their diet and see specifically what they're eating, if you can address their lifestyle, you might be able to do a decent amount of work just by focusing on that. And then if that doesn't work, is there a simple liver detox that you like to do? And if so, what is that? Yeah, so there's there are specific products. I'm bringing it up like I'm teaching a lecture, but that's not going to help. <laughs> um, so there's a product by New Ethics that's called MetaPure, and it addresses phase one and phase two detoxification. So it has all the minerals, all the vitamins, cofactors that you need to support that. And then there's a similar product that's by Metagenics, that's called Ultra Clear. And these are just powders. You can make a smoothie every single day and have a scoop or two scoops of that. And that'll get you started. It's not going to do everything, but it'll at least give you a head start to make sure from a nutrient standpoint that you're getting everything that you need. Awesome. And we can link those in the show notes too, just to give people a good place to start, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing too, you brought up constipation. I want to talk about constipation and bloating. Um, sure. A lot of times women, by the end of the night, it's almost like you can, you can, mm-hmm. they watch their stomach and it's not the normal, you know, in the morning you have a flatter stomach and at, at the end of the night, it's like I'll be eating 22, 2300 calories. And of course the food has to go somewhere, right? <laughs> Right. So there's right. going to be a bigger stomach, right? But it's almost like I've seen some clients where it's like throughout the day, it just grows and grows and grows. And, mm-hmm. and we could even be in a cut where it's like, you're not even bringing in the calories that are causing that. Have you seen that? What? How do people know the difference between um, a, a healthy at the end of the night you know, your full look versus like you're bloated. This is distended out. We've got to do something. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts surrounding this and we can touch upon several different viewpoints of this. But the first thing that I will say that you touched upon was individuals that are in a deficit. So things that I've noticed with individuals that are in a deficit is one they're obviously not consuming a ton of calories. And a lot of times this can impact their bowel movements because they don't have a lot of peristalsis. Peristalsis is that movement of food throughout the system. It's a contractive process. So if a client is in a deficit, if they do not have a sufficient amount of food that they're consuming, typically we see constipation. I see this a lot in bodybuilders and competitive Mm -hmm. athletes where they're having to use some type of like laxative because they're not going to the bathroom and that constipation is going to result in bloating. The other thing that we have to think about is the quality of foods that are consumed when someone is cutting calories. And I am very guilty of this. When I was doing my bikini competitions, I was eating 
all the sugar-free foods, <laughs> all the fat-free foods, gum, caffeine, you know, anything that was in like bar form or protein shake, processed foods, just a lot of foods that have these ingredients that are going to bloat us. Mm -hmm. And as the hours go on in the day, we're consuming more and more and more of those products. And the gut finally gets to this point where it's like, look, I've, I've had it. You're, you're abusing me. You're introducing so many of these ingredients and I don't know what to do with them. So we have to think about food quality first and foremost, when it comes to a client that's in a cut. Um, because I just think there's a lot of these diet type foods that are engineered to be low calorie and high fiber that have a lot of unnecessary ingredients that tend to bloat us. I mean, I was infamous for doing like low, they were like low carb, high fiber wraps, like the smart carb. I don't even remember the brand of it, but I'd eat a ton of those and wonder why I was so bloated at the end of the day from eating so many of those. So I just want people to keep that in the back of your mind that if you are bloating, you have to first and foremost, think about the foods that you're consuming because those are the common ones that are going to be triggers. Now, in my experience, when clients experience bloating in the evening, what do we think about dinner time? Like, think about how dinner time is different from the other foods or other meals that you eat. Usually, that's the first time that we're actually sitting down to have a meal. It's often larger in calories, higher in calories. It tends to be a meal that maybe we've waited a long time. We've waited too many hours until it's time to eat. And then it's way too big. It's way too many calories for our body to be able to digest. It's often the first meal on a client's food log where I see they actually have vegetables mm -hmm. in their day. So that's the first time they're actually introducing something that their body might not tolerate well. If they don't have the digestive capacity to handle that large of a quantity of food and that many vegetables, especially if they're raw vegetables or they're cruciferous vegetables or something along that line, it might be something that they're going to bloat from. So I know there's a lot of thoughts around, hey, your stomach should not be flat in the evening, but we have to think about the other variables that could be impacting that. And I don't think it's normal to bloat in the evening time. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, can your body tolerate what you're eating? And are we having foods that are causing us to bloat? And is the meal too large for us to handle? Um, we're very atypical of European culture. European culture eats a large lunch and what we're up and we're moving, yes. we're digesting it well. Dinner time, we, we, we're not, we're eating and then we're mm -hmm. sitting. That's <laughs> so good. I love that you brought all those up, even the vegetables, because I think sometimes people think they're vegetables. I can have as many, it, it's good for you, which they're, they can be great. And there could be so many variables going into this. So I hesitate even saying this, um, but mm -hmm. my stomach can't handle a ton of vegetables throughout the day. Yeah, And I ha even have to yeah. be cautious in how 
like I need to cook them, what kind they are. And sometimes I can't afford all of the vegetables that do really well with my stomach, right? It's like going to be the broccolis that I can afford. And it's like, well, that my stomach does not like that, right? Yeah. It doesn't like a lot of people's. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't. So I had a client who by the end of the day, she is so bloated and we were trying to find her maintenance. And I, I said, I need to look at everything you're eating. She was convinced I had her eating 10 to 15 grams more in protein. She was convinced it was the protein. I don't know. It could be, let's just look at it all. And I realized, oh my heavens, I've never seen somebody eat so many vegetables in my entire life. Like just because they're good for you, they still have like, there is a point of diminishing returns. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And that's why people get so frustrated because they're like, I'm eating all these healthy foods. How, how could I possibly have gut issues? But these are the types of foods that they're short chain carbohydrates and they normally, they normally penetrate into the large intestine and they ferment. That's just, that's what they do. So when we're thinking about like FODMAPs, which is what a lot of vegetables and fruits are part of, they are short chain carbohydrates that are going to cause a lot of issues. So for a lot of my gut clients, we have to start with very low consumption of fiber, very low consumption of vegetables and heal the gut lining so that you can be able to tolerate them. Or we just, we can't consume them raw. You know, raw does, mm -hmm. it does not cook down any of the gases. The same goes with beans. If you're super sensitive to beans, you have to try sprouted. You have to try soaking them for a period of time to basically kill off any gases that could be in there. But if you're noticing these things, if you're like, I'm reacting to all these vegetables and I'm reacting to all these beans, you have to communicate that with your coach. And that has to be a warning sign of something deeper is going on. You know, sometimes I really love tracking macros because I do think mm -hmm. it educates people on what they're actually bringing in. So the, it can be a great tool, not just for, because uh, I'm not a fan of tracking 24 seven. I'm not a fan of that for most people. I, yeah, they don't, uh, nobody has the mind. They all think they do. Nobody has no. the mind to do that. Like it's just not healthy, right? But um, it's not. But anyways, I do love the educational piece. It should be a tool for education, and it it is fascinating to become aware of what you're bringing in. And I, I want to bring up two things. Um, you talked about when you're in a. I mean, I've had clients who have come to me, um, not in a cut, and they have to take some type mm -hmm. of laxative or some mm -hmm. that were coming out of a prep and they had to do that. That's the only way that sure. they would, that they would poop. And um, just talk to us about that. Like if you're relying on that, I would imagine that's a bad sign. <laughs> relying on yeah. laxatives, yeah. you mean? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You're, you're basically training your bowels to only go to the bathroom if you're, if you're stimulating them via a laxative. And what happens when you try to come off that laxative, your bowels are like, well, wait, like for the longest time, you were giving me this, this pill to help me go to the bathroom. And you basically have to retrain your bowels to go to the bathroom normally. Again, it's, it's very similar to clients that are relying on enemas 
to go to the bathroom too, which is, you know, I like enemas for some purposes for people, but long-term use of any of these things that are going to stimulate the bowels in a very unnatural way are going to cause some problems in your normalcy. So when we are working to transition off of some of those laxatives, we have to think of things that we can interject in the meantime. So when I'm focusing on clients, there's there's a specific tier for constipation that I use. And the first thing that it's going to come down to is obviously the deficit, things that we talked about before. If we're eating very little calories, it's just not a lot of food to propel through our system. We're, we're not going to go. Um, because with low calorie, it's also going to come things like lower fats. Mm-hmm. And fats are fantastic for constipation. Things like coconut oil and MCT oil, I use a ton in my practice. Um, with lower carbohydrates is also going to come lower fiber. So fiber is suffering, fats are suffering. Um, we have to think about hydration. Um, again, that's like one of the biggest things and the easiest things and the most cost-effective things that someone can do. So making sure that their water is high enough. And I think a lot of us think that we're well hydrated, but we're not Mm -hmm. actually. So if you think you're consuming enough water, try increasing it by another 40 ounces. And typically what I have clients do is with those 40 ounces that you are increasing by, add a packet of electrolytes because what are electrolytes, they help with contraction and peristalsis, the movement of food throughout the system, the word I keep talking about is a contractive process. So if we can help that, that's going to be, that's going to make a huge difference. It's also going to help our intracellular and extracellular balance of fluid, which again is going to help that movement. So making sure our water is high, making sure that our fiber is high, making sure that we're not in a deficit, increasing our fats, getting movement, just not super intense movement, but making sure that we are walking maybe yoga, things that are more parasympathetic, because the more that we have high stress on the system, that cortisol, what's that high cortisol going to do? It's going to suppress our digestive process. It's not going to allow for digestion to occur. So sometimes we need to take a break and do more gentle movements. And then if all that you've done and you're still experiencing constipation, then I would say interject with something like magnesium citrate, which citrate, that specific form, is not digested well. So what happens is it gets to the large intestine and it pulls a bunch of water towards it so that it can be digested. And it's that water pooling, that osmotic laxative effect that helps us go to the bathroom. So we can come in with all of those things and slowly start to transition off of um, the laxatives and things like that that we've been relying on for so long. I love that. That is that is an amazing takeaway because I do know, unfortunately, a lot of people have been encouraged by practitioners to do that. That, oh, there's the problem. Here's the solution. And Oh, always. Wow. Yeah, it's always me relax. It's, but you know what? I feel bad yeah. for a lot of a lot of doctors because that's the training that they get. It is. It's by no fault to them. It really isn't. One hundred percent. Another question. Um, oftentimes, I hear this a lot, uh, or I get this question a lot on Instagram, that when somebody increased their protein, it caused a lot of bloating. Is that common? Mm-hmm. Okay. It is. It's super super Talk common. Talk to us about that. So. 
Yeah. So when we think about the types of foods that are hardest for the body to digest or take the longest for the body to digest, we're talking about things like protein and we're talking about fats, which tend to be the two things that I see most problematic because both of those types of foods depend on really good digestive capacity. When I'm talking about digestive capacity, I'm referring to things like bile flow. Is our gallbladder actually able to release enough bile to help the digestion of our fats? And then the other thing, if you notice that protein is very hard to digest and it kind of like sits like a rock in your stomach, it's usually because of low hydrochloric acid. So our stomach should have a sufficient amount of acidity in it. And if we don't, it's going to have a really hard time breaking down that protein. And one of the most common causes of low hydrochloric acid is stress and Mm. is low sodium intake. Because if we think about hydrochloric acid, chloride, we need sufficient sodium. And what are people constantly advising people to do? cut your sodium intake. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. I feel like you're nailing it though. So in the past, I've, I've, and I will be the first to confess GI, not my specialty. Lissa, you want to come and learn how to like optimize your squat. I'm your girl. GI, you go to Alyssa. Like you. Yeah, that's not my specialty either. <laughs> she knows what she's talking about. But I've always heard, well, if you're not digesting proteins, it's because you lack certain digestive enzymes. So is this just, is this not true? Or is that like a part of the problem? It's part of it. Yeah, it's part of it. So you're, you're, when I refer to the term digestive capacity, it's, it's a lot of different things. So when I test a client and I do a stool test, for example, there is a specific marker that's called elastase. And elastase refers to your pancreatic sufficiency. Is your pancreas able to release a sufficient amount of amylase, lipase, and pepsin, the three things that help break down your macronutrients? And kind of getting an idea of that value will tell us if that client needs pancreatic support. Pancreatic support via digestive enzymes is very different from hydrochloric acid support because as you're looking at different digestive enzymes, you'll see that some contain hydrochloric acid or sometimes it's referred to as betaine hydrochloric acid and some of them don't. And it's important to test them out on an individual because sometimes sometimes hydrochloric acid is not the problem. Sometimes a client has H. pylori and they're stomach acid feels like it's on fire and they're not going to like hydrochloric acid in that supplement because their acidity is already high. So you can always start with digestive enzymes that don't have hydrochloric acid and use something like apple cider vinegar, which most of us have at home, take it like an ounce with your meals. And the other thing that you can try are digestive bitters. So that's going to help stimulate, you know, the the bitter, the bitter taste. What does it do? It gets your salivary glands like going. If you have something very bitter, you start to salivate. So it's going to get that 
secretion going to help that digestive process, but they are less invasive and less harmful on the system than going straight in with hydrochloric acid, especially if the client does not need it. Oh, that is fascinating. Okay. That is so good to know. So our time is coming to a close. I'm so sad. I just had Will on yesterday and I told him we need a part two, three, and four. Like that's what we need. Like I could really just sit here and ask you questions all day. I did want to give a little shout out to you. You just barely opened a CrossFit gym. We're in the process. So it's going to be opening in the next few weeks. Yes. So local. where is it located? Just in case you have any local people there. Yeah, we are in Cape Coral, Florida. So right next to Fort Myers, it's called CrossFit Rising. So those who are unfamiliar with the Cape Coral area, we got hit by Hurricane Ian pretty bad back in September. And we constantly were seeing things that said rise up and, you know, things are going to get better. And so we kind of played off of that name and we're so excited. We, we met, my boyfriend and I met at a CrossFit gym. So it just kind of is very close to our heart. So yeah, we're going to be opening up here in the next few weeks. I love it. That is so exciting. That is so fun. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I just know that the listeners, there's so many takeaways from this. And I really appreciate that. Shower Alyssa with your love, go and follow her. We'll put a link in the notes so that they can find you. Because if you have questions about this stuff, guys, I'm, I'm not your gal. I will send you to her. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can ask away. It's, it's my favorite thing ever to teach and talk about. I love it. And I find that your Instagram space is one of, you are a natural teacher. You're very gifted in it. Your Instagram space is very much one of education. And I just, I love finding women who educate others like that an amazing gift. So go and follow her. Well, thank you. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have to have you on again. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. We should do a whole group together with Will and Gillis. It'd be a lot of fun. We should. That's a great idea. I love it.